This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. And join us for the next hour as we get to delve into that wonderful world of books. So grab yourself a cuppa and settle in. Daphne Lee is an Honorary Associate Professor at the Geology Department at the University of Otago and is a coordinator of the research team at Fordham Mar. And she's the co-author of the recently published book, Fossil Treasures at Fordham Mar, A Window into Miocene Zealandia. Daphne, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, as a kid, and actually now, still now as an adult, um, I've always been fascinated by fossils. And I know many people who are out listening um, today are as well. So I thought we'd get um, you to start actually by, you know, folding ma. What is a ma? Right. Well, that's the question that everybody asks. And it's an unfamiliar word. And I've discovered that spell checks always try and change it to something else. So it's M-A-A-R, and that's how it's properly spelled. So it's a kind of volcano, and they're actually very common. So if you if you go to Auckland and you look at um, lots of little round lakes like Lake Pupuki and so on, they're Mars. So what happens is that you have um, very hot basalt, basaltic magma rising from depth and hitting a body of water, possibly a lake or an aquifer or something rather. And what happens is you get a very violent explosion um, on the Earth's surface, which um, creates a huge plume of debris that goes up maybe as far as 20 kilometres up in the air, but it leaves a crater that's probably never bigger than one or maybe two kilometres in diameter, but it's very deep. So imagine a hole in the ground after this explosion that's a kilometre across and maybe two or 300 metres deep, okay? Mm. And most of the material that was blasted up <laughs> goes up and then it comes back down and it fills in a large part of the, the, the crater, but quite a lot of it also will spread around the rim of the crater. And that's really important because what happens after that is that um, the hole in the ground will fill with water and you'll end up with a lake quite rapidly um, because groundwater and rainwater and so on will fill it in. But because there's this rim of debris around the outside, you don't get streams carrying sediment in. So most lakes are very um, fairly short-lived in geological terms because Rivers and streams and creeks and so on carry sediment, silt and sand and stuff, in and, and fill them up quickly. But a mar lake um, stays um, um, kind of pristine with not much sediment coming into it. And so everything that accumulates on the floor of that lake is from what was living in the lake, so, you know, fish and algae and so on, or what was blown in. Um, because in the case of Folden Mar, um, forest 
the forest that was there initially, 23 million years ago, before the volcanic eruption, um, was destroyed, completely you know, blasted out of existence. But over time, over um, thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years, forest re-established and then right around the edge of the lake because it's nice, fertile, basaltic soil and um, leaves and uh, flowers and fruits and so on would blow into the lake and that's what accumulated on the lake bed. And um, the other thing is because the lake is small and very deep, the bottom part of it is completely without oxygen. We call it anoxic. And so anything that gets um, sinks down to the bottom of the lake is pickled. Think of it as a pickling process. I mean, that's probably the best word to describe it. Um, so there's oxygen in the top layers, and so fish and and insects and things can exist there. But if they get down below this layer, um, they, they're pickled. So um, it's, a, it's a kind of a peculiar situation. Um, and Foldenmar is one of the best examples in the Southern Hemisphere of a situation where you have a mar which, is, um, which hasn't been modified much. It's, it's kind of still there the way, the way it's been for millions of years until we started um, digging around with our picks and shovels and diggers and things. So... Um when did they, you know, as the site, um, clearly there's no lake there right now, you know, how long ago would that lake have, have dried up? Right, Fill, filled up, yes. No, filled up. So the volcano um, erupted almost exactly 23 million years ago, which is kind of important um, because it's when the, uh, the time at the Oligocene-Miocene boundary and the time when ice was starting to accumulate on Antarctica. And so global climate was going through a big, change and so on the lake itself probably existed for a bit more than 130,000 years but every year of those 130,000 years a thin layer like less than a um, half a millimeter thick layer of sediment would accumulate on the bottom so we can actually go back and look at every single one of those years um, for 130,000 years but having said that the lake filled up more than 22 million years ago and it, then it got covered with younger sediments and so it was effectively not only were things pickled in the bottom of the lake but the lake itself has been kind of frozen in time until we started um, investigating it that's a that's a lot of layers <laughs> just thinking yeah, 130,000 layers, layers. <laughs> some of my students actually started counting them and they decided that that was too many to count so they would count like 10,000 or something and then extrapolate a bit and maybe count another 10,000 but it's just amazing it's the best climate record for its um for that time period in the southern hemisphere <laughs> that's a lot more ambitious than counting tree rings <laughs> it's like counting tree rings for a tree that lived for 130,000 years and you could count every single tree ring and every layer or every ring represented what was happening in the climate at the time. So when was the site first you know, rediscovered in modern times? And okay, well, we don't exactly know. Um, I don't think there's any record of pre-European discovery because it would, there wouldn't have been anything to see. Um, but probably the very first people who did farming there um, saw some funny white sediment, which is the diatomite um, that and mostly infilled the lake, um, because in 1875, there's a, a few sentences written about 
freshwater diatoms from the Strathtyre, which is the you know the old name for the Middlemarch area, and um, that was in a book uh, written about the gold fields of Otago, and so you know diatomite wasn't worth anything so they weren't particularly interested but they just noted it in passing and then in the 19 I think 1910 somebody must have thought hmm let's dig a bit of this out and send it off to somebody and see if we can make some money out of it so some bags of it were dug up and sent off to England or somewhere we actually don't know what happened because we never heard the end of the story um and, and um that was kind of the end of it again. And then in the from the 1940s onwards, um, a few truckloads um, have of, of um, the white diatomite have, were mined and used for insulation and filtration and various things. And then in the 1950s, they decided they would um, see how much there was there um, and they might use it when they were building the Roxburgh and the Waitaki um, hydroelectric dams because the diatomite, the sediment, um, is useful for cooling concrete, you know, when you're pouring huge pours of concrete. And so in the 1950s, there was a lot of investigation done and they worked out how big the deposit was, you know, kilometre across and, well, half a mile across, I guess, in those days. And they did some drilling to find out how deep it was. And again, then nothing much happened. And then in the 19, early, no, the early 2000s or late 1990s, a new mining company came in and decided maybe they could make some serious money out of this. And they got diggers in and, and did some more drilling and so on and um, took a few truckload, a few more truckloads away, maybe hundreds of truckloads away. Um, and, and that was fine. And they also um, worked in with the University of Otago. So they would um, ring us up and say, right, we're going to have a digger in. We might find some interesting fossils. Would you like to bring a group of students up and have a look? And so we would go up several times a year and see what we could find. And the fossils got more and more exciting and interesting and so on. And then, and um, I think it was 2018, all of a sudden, another mining company from overseas had come in and we discovered to our horror um, from a leaked report that um, was published in the Otago Daily Times that the new mining company was going to not just mine a few truckloads, but the entire deposit, hundreds of thousands of tonnes every year for, I think it was 27 years, and they were going to take it all away. It was going to be used as, uh, first of all, fertiliser for palm oil plantations in Malaysia or somewhere, which didn't go down very well with people. So they changed what they said in public and said it was going to be used as an addition to poultry and pig um, food, which didn't make sense. And so anyway, all sorts of questions started being asked and people started wondering what was going on here. And those of us who started discovering these amazing fossils got very upset about it mm. and said, we've got to put a stop to this. Um, and so there were petitions and protests and letters and petitions to, you know, the government and, and um, eventually the mining company um, went, they pulled out, they actually pulled the plug themselves, um, possibly realising that, that public opinion and scientific opinion was very much not on their side and um, they went into receivership but that's been the situation for the last three years and so we cannot go at the moment nobody can go and look for fossils there um, the gate is locked and everybody is forbidden you know from, from access is for, forbidden for everybody scientists and and the public alike so that's where it's been for about the last three years and we're still hoping for a 
positive resolution sometime in the future. Yes, because as um, like you said, it seems to be an extraordinarily significant site, you know, Not as far yet. as the, the fossil record um, and everything like that within New Zealand and... Um, and globally. And, and globally, yeah. Um, so, you know, what sort of fossils have been found there and, you know, what have been the most exciting discoveries? Right. Well, there's a bit of everything. Um, I remember it's a freshwater freshwater lake, so the things that you would expect. So there's a lot of algae. Um, most of the sediment is actually diatoms, um, tiny little aquatic plants. Um, and there's um, a lot of plant material. Most of the fossils you, we find are leaves that must have blown in from a surrounding forest, rainforest. Um, there's also flowers, um, there's fruits and seeds, some, some bits of um, bark and so on, fungi um, on the leaves. Um, but the really exciting things are fish. There are little fish. The oldest um, white bait fossils known from anywhere in the world come from Foldenmar, which is really exciting. And some of them are beautifully preserved. Um, so there's um, fish, there's eels, um, the sponges I forgot to mention um, there's also coprolites so um, <laughs> people don't know what coprolites mean bird poo and so sooner or later we expect to find bird bones um, at the moment we know that they were there um, because we, we've got um, little droppings that contain grains of sand that came from somewhere else not that they're not part of the, the um, Foldenmar lake system but the other really important fossils are insects when we mm. first started working there um, there were I think six fossil insects older than the ice ages known from New Zealand um, we've now got up to about 600 different wow. insects and spiders from New Zealand and about nearly 300 of them come from Foldenmar and they're all new to science. Nobody had any idea about them being here. Um, and there are some spiders. Um, but the insects are incredibly diverse. So there's things, live, there's things um, scale insects attached to leaves. There's bark bugs. There's um, weevils of various kinds. There's beetles, which have still got some color. Um, I'm going to have to have a look at my thing. There's crane flies. There's ants, lots of ants. There's wasps, <laughs> caddisflies, um, plant hoppers, um, termites, <laughs> um, and 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 we're really only at the start of you know the start of the research. So this is what we found after um, say ten years of solid research. Who knows what it, what else is there? But I I would think it's a you know curve that's going to keep on going up for probably decades, if not centuries to come, as long as we can have access to the site. Um, the, the level of preservation must be amazing. I was sort of reading it in, in the book, you know, when it's talking particularly about spiders and because mm -hmm. they don't have like hard kindness hard parts, that's right. parts yes. the, the, there's very rare to find yes, examples of that. And there are some spiders, yeah, which is really exciting. Yeah, but the um, other insects have got eyes and antennae and pat beautiful patterns on the wings and so on. And as I said, some of them have even got colour, you know, the original structural colour and so on. So they really are exciting. However, I need to say most of them are pretty small. You need to have a good eyesight or a hand lens and then you need to bring them back and look at them under the microscope. Um, but each one of them is telling a sort of a, a new story about the history of life in New Zealand and sometimes history of life in the Southern Hemisphere um, or even further afield. So they're of interest to people, not just in New Zealand, but but everywhere. In fact, the um, 
that um, um, Uwe Kalfus, my co-author, who was um, my PhD student and then postdoctoral fellow, is now based in Germany, and he's working on fossil insects from New Zealand from <laughs> a university in Germany where they're paying him to do this because what he's finding is so exciting and new and interesting. And yeah. So what can the site tell us, um, no, internationally, locally, about um, climate and you know, how can that be used into the future? Right. Well, that was the other thing that was kind of unexpected. So we got some uh, Marsden funding to drill through the centre of the deposit. So it's kind of shaped like a, an ice cream cone. And we wanted to drill in the, you know, the middle and the deepest part of it um, to see if we could get down to the volcanic rocks at the bottom. And um, we... Um, after a lot of preparatory work, we did that. Um, so we've got 120 um, something, 20, gosh, I've got to have to look it up. Um, a core that's 183 meters long and 120 odd meters of that is the year by year climate signal from the these very fine um, layers. Um, and you can do measurements on them and work out all sorts of interesting facts about the climate. We can pick up ENSO cycles, you know, the La Nina, El Nino, El Nino um, cycles that we can pick them up in the core and we can pick up sunspot activity, um, just wow. all sorts of things. Um, but as well as that, there are leaves all the way through the core and the the leaves at Foldenmar are so beautifully preserved that you can um, look at all the cells on the surface and, and measure the stomata and how dense they are. And that gives you a... Um, um, a way of looking at you know past CO2 levels so you can work out how hot it was how cold it was what the CO2 levels were and and all sorts of things and so one of the things that we discovered or one of my PhD students discovered was that the climate overall was probably about eight degrees centigrade this is the mean annual temperature about eight degrees centigrade warmer than it is at middle March today Mm. So much, much warmer, um, probably no snow, no ice. Um, but then, of course, there were no mountains at that time either. Um, so we can kind of look back in the past and see what the climate was like. And the other thing, we can work out that the CO2 levels were much higher than they are today. But as most people know, the CO2 levels in the atmosphere today are going up and up and up every year. And in another 20 years or so, we might be getting up close to where the climate was at Foldenmar 23 million years ago. So it would be quite nice to be as warm as Brisbane um, in Dunedin. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Wouldn't be very good for the rest of the planet because... But then the ants would come back. Well, then <laughs> they would too. <laughs> they might. And the termites. Yes, I hadn't thought of that. And yeah, probably mosquitoes and all sorts of things. Yes, I hadn't quite um, thought of it like that. Yes. Um, and, and we might get rainforests back again, too, instead of, you know, the dry tussocks that we expect around middle March, we'd, we might have subtropical rainforests because the rain, um, it was much wetter back then, too. So the climate has changed a huge amount um, over this time period. And But the only way we can kind of know that is by studying sites exceptional sites like this one at Foldenmar. And then we can kind of um, look look back in time and then we can look forward in time and think, hmm, where are we heading, you know, with what humans are doing to the planet now? And, yeah, um, it's kind of, um, it's frightening in a way to see that 
looking back, what we're looking at is natural changes. What we're doing now is speeding up, you know, these changes to a degree that the planet has never seen before. So it's yeah. a gigantic, um, terrifying experiment that we're doing. And not a good one. And not a good one, no. Right. And this also um, sort of also highlights the importance of the site and preserving it and being able to keep researching at it. Mm -hmm. That is really important because one of the things that scientists know is that you never know what questions people will want to be asking five or 10 or 20 years in the future. And many of the most important discoveries in science have been made not by nice organized you know projects but serendipity something that came out of left field that people didn't even think about when they started off um and it, we've got the core that you know the the core that we drilled um it's in a refrigerated container down at the university but it's probably going to deteriorate over time and we've asked lots lots of questions of it we've you know done lots of research but i can imagine that in 10, 10 years time, people might want to go back and drill the deposit again and look for different kinds of information that might be there. Um, yeah, they'll have a different set of questions. <laughs> they will, yes, and and uh, they might be able to redo some of the things we've done and get you know um, get more precise answers too. So, so destroying the deposit the way the mining company was going to do was was it was just such a terrible idea. Um, and it's not as if there's another fold in mass somewhere else that you can go and, you know, um, study. It's the only one of its kind. There is no other one anywhere on the planet like yeah. this one. So unique. Now, the next question I was just wanting to ask you, because, um, you know, sort of slightly more personal, was that, you know, in 2017, you were awarded with the Mackay Hammer from the Geoscience Society. So mm -hmm. how did you get into this field of work? Were you one of these kids who was always fascinated by rocks and geology? <laughs> That's right, yes. Yep, I used to collect shells and rocks and things. Yeah, I grew up in Southland on a farm and I used to spend my holidays at Riverton. So I had, I still got some of my collections of shells and rocks off the beach and so on. So um, when I was at um, a secondary school, at Gore High School, um, we had a, um, a teacher um, who, when I was about 14 or so, um, had a geology club. And I... I I obviously went along to it and um, got even more fascinated um, by geology and and uh, fossils and minerals and, and whatever. Decided I was going to become a geologist when I was like 14 or so and came to university and basically never left. And I've never lost my fascination for understanding the earth and understanding how you know what we see around us today in New Zealand got to be that way. So I, I hope I can interpret the landscape and I know what's happened in the past you know I can look at around Dunedin and see in my mind's eye the volcanoes that you know once you know were erupting here and, and um, produced the mountains that well hills that everybody takes for granted and and um, see what's happened to them through time as well as looking at the you know the, the forests and, and so on and understanding you know how they got to be that way. So for those listeners out there who've got kids who are just absolutely into fossils and things like that, how can they encourage them um, if they're interested in a, in a career like yours? I think you should go on outdoor activity um, trips whenever you can. Go to the beach, um, go to rivers, um, take them to the Vanished World Trail up in um, um, North Otago and go around, go around that because that's designed specifically for encouraging 
um, people to understand the landscape and so on. And uh, I would like to see Vanished World extended and, um, you know, to many other sites around New Zealand. Um, so get, you have to get your hands dirty um, and collect things. Uh, you, when, when children come to me with a, you know, a something, you know, some crummy bit of rock and say, what is this? I'm all, I always take it very seriously and explain to them that that piece of rock is a story and I can help them, you know, work out what the story is, you know, where it came from and how old it is and, and so on. Um, and when students come to university as first-year students, and you, you know very quickly which of them are likely to become a geologist because they've got this passionate interest in everything that's going on around them and they're interested in, you know, um, time travel back into the past and so on. So, yeah. And also geology covers everything. Um, the, the, the natural world, including, you know, space and, and, and so on. So And everything from microscopic up to, you know, um, the solar system. So, you know, anything that you're interested in can, can uh, fit into the field of geology or earth science. That's great. Hey, thank you so much, Daphne, for coming on the show today and sharing your passion because it's clear that you absolutely love what you do and to talk about um, fossil treasures of Bolden Mar and uh, wish you all the very best and hopefully getting some access back to the site. That's what I'm hoping for too. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short music break. We'll be back soon. Don't you think that it's boring how people talk? Making smart with the words again. Well, I'm bored. Because I'm doing this for the thrill of it, killing it. Never not chasing a million things I want And I am only as young as the minute is full of it Getting pumped up on the little bright things I bought But I know they'll never own me Baby be the class clown I'll be the beauty queen in tears It's a new iPhone showing people how little we care so happy Even when we're smiling out of fear Let's go down to the tennis court And talk it up like yeah, yeah. Pretty soon I'll be getting on my first plane I'll see the veins of my city Like they do in space Filling up fast with the wicked games Up in flames How can I fuck with the fun again When I'm known And my boys trip me up With their heads again Loving them Everything's cool When we're all in line For the throne But I know it's not forever Maybe yeah. be the class clown I'll be the beauty queen in tears It's a new iPhone Showing people out
Listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. Now, I had the immense pleasure of interviewing Witte Iamira at the recent New Zealand Society of Authors Roadshow in New Plymouth. And last month I played the first instalments of our interview. And today I'm going to be playing the final section where I had the wonderful chat with Witte, one of New Zealand's greatest storytellers. So, I don't know why I'm talking this way today, maybe it's the wind coming off the mountain. But, um, so I want to give you an exercise because I, I mentioned scaffolding before, and um, so sometimes when I do my chapters, um, you know, I'll look at what it is and then I will try to do it from different perspectives. So I'm going to give you an exercise, and this exercise is a wedding. So for instance, in, in one of my novels, you know, I have a, a wedding scene. And it was going all wrong, and then I realized it was because I hadn't done enough homework or enough research into it. So this is a wedding scene, a girl and a boy standing in front of the altar with the priest. So I want you to write the wedding scene, just one or two sentences from each perspective. What does the mother of the girl see? What does the father of the boy see? What does the priest see? What does the girl's best friend see? And what does the boy's best man see? Off you go. Just two or three sentences, you know, like um, the, um, the mother of the bride sees her daughter and realizes that she's much too good for this boy, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Or, or the priest looks at the at the couple, and he hopes that they're going to have a, you know, something like that. I don't want to tell you what what to write. So, so, so five or six perspectives: the mother of the the mother of the bride, the father of the bride, for instance. Anybody you like, the mother of the bride sees, the friend at the wedding sees, the ex girlfriend of the, the boy sees. And this is normally what I do for the research phase of my, my work, every chapter. I'll just construct it like this so that I've got enough stuff to work with so that the chapters have resonance and I've taken account of what's happening outside the church, for instance. If somebody's coming late, you know, the queer um, who's remembering, for instance, that um, 
there's a secret here that the that that the boy doesn't know, and that is that he, he um, that that um, his father isn't a legitimate son. You know, it's a way of just exploring those scenes um, and making sure that when you actually do get to write them, you have everything. You know, the, the cake, the cake maker. Um, what the cake looks like, what the bridesmaids are looking like, all of that. And I wouldn't really think about writing a scene, a wedding scene, unless I go through all of those different perspectives. Do you do the same thing? I'm going to now. <laughs> but I was just, as you were discussing that, I was thinking it's a really useful exercise in that um, it, it brings in all these different perspectives and also therefore a way you may write that entire scene in a totally different way than you may have thought beforehand from a a perspective. Um, But also it frees your mind and your subconscious up to think of some of the curveballs and some of the tension builders that will come in later on in the piece. Well, one of the curveballs that happened for me was that after having done, done it this way in a book, I then redid it as a ballet. <laughs> Most people don't do it as a ballet. <laughs> no, no, it was, and the Royal New Zealand Ballet put it on. It was very successful. And uh, so sometimes, you, you know, one writes and researches and then discovers that actually it would be better, for instance, as a play as well. So you, you have to keep yourself flexible. And open-minded about it. And open-minded, yes, yes. So with that one, I discovered that instead of wanting to make it in the, from the perspective of um, the young boy who was getting married, I changed the perspective and gave it to the father of the bride. Mm. And one of the lovely things just about our, my conversation with Witty just while you're doing this is that um, no matter where you are in your writing journey, you're always learning new things from other writers, yeah. new ways of doing things. So. Um, and that's the value of yes. keeping coming along yes. to workshops yes. and talks and things. Yes. Well, in December, I've been invited to go to the um, to a university conference in Tahiti, and I've been tossing and turning about it because um, there was other other really wonderful people from the Pacific coming. So I've decided that I'm going to go. But I'm going to go as a tourist. I'm going to go to listen and not, and not speak. I've decided that it, you know, it's about time that I go back into the Pacific, that this time I should listen to what my peers are saying. I will learn more from what they're saying than what they could learn from what I, I can tell them about what happens in Aotearoa, New Zealand, because um, we are such a we're on a different wavelength here to what they are. We don't really talk about um, rising sea levels to the same emotional degree that they do. And certainly we don't talk about um, unemployment and COVID in the same ways that they do. So, yeah, I've got to be a tourist. It's good to be a tourist. And as I said earlier, um, sort of also that whole having that opportunity for when you're presenting, it's all, all writing, it's about yeah. output, actually having That's input, right. input That's recharging right. those batteries. That's right, so, so you're good at that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so would anybody like to read their work? Yes? Um, Go. No, what, 
one of the things I learned was that um, if I didn't let go of my work, then it would always stay in me and I wouldn't be challenged. So sometimes, you know, when we're, when we're creating these, uh, these chapters, we don't think of these little things like the curveballs that uh, she's just been saying to me, you know, and we can then add those little bits of curveball and humour to make sure that nothing that not everything is going the same way, that it's all crisscrossing, and so there's humour and, and, and drama and characterisation going at the same time. One more. Yes, good, good. Okay. So you'll get the idea. So, but you have to go deeper than that, you know. It's all about uncovering and un, unpeeling um, these characters in, in ways that are surprising. Not only for the characters, but for the readers too, because one of the things that we want readers to do is to identify with our characters. And they will identify with grief. They will identify with a bruise, you know. They will identify with the humor of a situation. Um, so I do this with, with just about all of my characters, uh, all of my chapters these days, do it that way. <laughs> um, we decided at this point, because I'm sure you have plenty of questions, that we're actually going to open up the floor for um, questions. And we have a good period of time, so um, and what you, looks, always looks forward to the questions, don't you? It's interesting to I see what people come up with. Absolutely. Well, when David and I were talking before this, um, um, he was asking me some questions and I said about writing. And I said, well, I actually only start writing in either October or November, and I will go through until February. And I don't write for the rest of the year because I get physically sick if I continue to write all that year. But if I've got a first draft within those few months, then I can work on that, that, that first draft over the, the rest of the, of the year. But um, I only use that, that, that framework um, um, to recreate a state of mind. So it's summer as a state of mind, not necessarily the season. It's autumn as a state of mind, not necessarily the season. Uh, so it, it's just to make sure that you're not putting all of your character development in summer, for instance, and that you are making sure that the evolution of your characters um, is, is reflective of, of their particular, particular journey. So if instead of starting in summer, we started in autumn, where would we end up? We'd have autumn, winter, spring, summer. Okay. And then if we started in winter, where would we end up? Autumn. Okay. So whatever, whatever way you do it, um, it allows you to progress your work um, in a logical, um, psychological, straightforward manner so that you're not always going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and that your character is going back into some kind of uh, mindset that, uh, that you don't want them to, you know, to go back into. I just want to follow up one of the elements of your response there where you talked about you write for a certain period of time and then you have a break, otherwise you get sick. So across your career, how have you actively worked on maintaining your well-being as a writer, um, particularly if you are you know, writing about things that can be emotionally challenging and charging? How do you protect yourself as a writer? Well, I've always been fit and physically fit because I think that writing is a physical... Um, it's a physical matter, not just, uh, you know, um, 
uh, not just a, a mental or emotional matter. And um, in the beginning, I never used to write sitting down because I, you know, I used to find it very unhealthy. And doctors will tell you actually that sitting with your, your, your legs crossed like that is very bad for you. And that this particular configuration is bad for your heart. So in the beginning, I would write standing up and it would be, and because I'm a farmer's son, I wasn't used to sitting down you know, like this all the time. Um, but today, I don't write standing up anymore, although I, and I only write on an iPad, because uh, that way then it, it frees me up to write anywhere I can go. Um, I don't necessarily have to have the same room. I'm not, therefore not fixated in having to be in the same place, same time, you know. I don't have those sorts of pieces of magic that a lot of us have to, you know, to make us feel safe before we, before we, before we begin. Um, if my world is safe, then I am safe. So I, I first of all make sure that my children are safe, my family is safe, and, that, uh, and so their well-being comes before mine. Um, that having said, having said that, um, there are challenges to keep myself um, aware that um, the world is not, a, um, not always um, a place that is amenable to the way that you are. And so I've had a lot of criticism in my life. And I've also had a lot of racism in my life. I've had a lot of people, you know, who will have come up to me in, in bars and hotels and would uh, want to take a poke at me. I've had letters when people used to write letters shoved in my letterbox, hate mail. I've had all sorts of, of things like that. So there is a Māori expression which says that if you are rubbed by, um, um, by mud, you can wash it off. But if you are rubbed with love, it will last forever. So whenever things like that happen, then I have these various things that I say to myself um, to be able to maintain um, my sense of, of, of worth. I went through a, a time when I wrote a book called The Trawena Sea, which was based partly here in um, the Taranaki. And um, it's been, it, it was an interesting it was an interesting time for me because I, I hadn't been aware that the media would be so interested in these three or four incidences of plagiarism, alleged plagiarism in um, the book. And it seemed to me that uh, what was happening was that on the basis of these four, some of them were two sentences within, um, within a book that was 600 pages long, um, that they were losing sight of of, of, of what, was, what was really important um, in that book. So I did make an apology. I did also um, then buy all of the books um, that were left in the warehouse and in the shops. And um, those books are still um, in my sister's garage in, in um, Gisborne. The point of it being that, to answer your question, is that... Um, you always have to do what you think is right. You know? And as long as you feel that what you've done is ethically and morally right, as long as there's nothing dishonest about what you, what you do, then 
you'll be fine because the person to whom this most matters is yourself. So I've often tried to make sure that uh, um, where, where I stand is, is, is a place that is firm that um, I can justify. I don't quite get the question. How do I make sure what doesn't happen? Head hopping. Hopping from one person's head into another person's head. Oh, I head. see. Head hopping. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, you can only do that after you've lived with your characters for long enough so that they do begin to have their own individuality. Um, if you haven't lived with them long enough, and if they haven't um, got that individuality, then it can be easy to hop your head from one of those characters into the other. Um, so one way I use of, of, of creating characters, um, and especially if you're writing your book from an I perspective, you know, I went to the store and I saw Karen. Do most of you write from that perspective? No? What perspective do you usually write from? Do you write from a third person, various characters perspective? Is that how you do it? Mm. Yeah, third, third person. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, so screenwriters do, um, do what I'm going to suggest to you. And what it is is that um, you put a mirror up to yourself, if you're one of the characters, and you describe yourself physically, mentally, socially, culturally, and then you do the same for each of your, you know, you create profiles of each of your characters. And then you give them things that they would say. And then when you begin to write your, your work, um, that gives you a framework of reference by which to test whether or not you're head hopping or not. Um, I don't think anybody's work is, is, uh, is finite. I think that, um, and, and in my case, um, I've got, I have got this habit of rewriting my work. I mean, the next iteration of Ponamu Ponamu coming out in September is the fifth generation rewrite. <laughs> and it's because um, the original story was based in the 1950s, the original stories for it. And here we are in 2022, and if I was wanting to make my work relevant to today, then um, and rather than being historically positioned, then the, the best way to do that is to continue to update it. So it's updated in terms of its literary techniques. Um, it's the same with um, Tangi, which is the 50th anniversary novel coming out next year. Um, I am changing the orthography of, of the book. Um, I thought that I was being clever when I first wrote it. So um, Janet Frame, instead of using quotation marks, um, she used uh, the dash, the M dash for speech marks. And I've decided that I'm going to take all of those M dashes out and try to, again, achieve that flotation or buoyancy by having less of that material around it and by, and by allowing the words just to speak for themselves in context. So I do enjoy um, this work of, of updating. And for instance, I updated Tangi in, in, in 2004 and introduced new characters into a kind of sequel um, to it at the same time. So that was published as The Rope of Man. 
um, I republished Fano as Fano Two. My um, my pet name for it is the Revenge of Fano. Um, but again, it's also because the politics of the times have changed. And I wanted to make sure that the rural politics of Māori, which had then been informed by Waitangi Tribunal um, transactions, was up to date um, and, and not um, as, um, instead of being implicit in the first version of Tangi, they are now explicit in the second version. Um, I, I'm always really very adamant that one should be aware of the politics of your book. And so um, on the wall, one of the last uh, pieces of advice I always used to give to myself was, are the politics credible? You know, are the politics credible? If I have got a woman character in it, is this woman character, and if she is from a, um, um, from an, abusive um, background, what ha and have I got her to say things and do things that are credible? Does she look credible? So to me, it's all about credibility um, in terms of, uh, of, of their political um, identity. And just to follow up slightly on that, um, is it you who drives the rewrites or your publisher? You know, how does that relationship work when you are wanting to redo something? Are they amenable to those ideas? No, the, the publishers are not the ones who drive it. Mm. You know. um, so, for instance, with this, um, the one that's uh, a rewrite of Tangi, Harriet doesn't want to give it to me because she knows that you know, that's my particular agenda, will be to rewrite it. And she says, well, how will, how will the, uh, the readers think when they are confronted with a new book? And I say, they won't be confronted with a new book, they'll be confronted with an optional book. It will be, so, so therefore they, they will have the thrill, if they wish, of comparing both of them. They will also have the thrill of understanding that this is a writer who is aware of his craft and who wants to be a craftsperson as a writer, rather than somebody who is a writer who um, wants to be remembered in a particular way. So I'm always conscious of the fact that as I grow older, I grow better and my work becomes richer, more complex, more complicated. And even though people still go back, come back to me and say, oh, we liked your, your, your earlier work better, that might be the case, but it has to stand on the principles that I apply um, to my work, and it has to stand within the light of 2022 and the, and the years to come. Do many people do that, rewrite their books like what you've done? No, no. Um, I wrote a book here in the Taranaki, for instance, called um, The Parihaka Woman, and The Parihaka Woman is still the only novel with um, um, footnotes. So I'm very proud of that. The reason why it has footnotes is because of the Trauenasi, um crisis that I went through. I thought, well, bugger it. If they, if they want me to identify every little piece of information that I got from 
historic sources, because it's impossible to write a book like The Trial in the Sea without having to go to historical sources. Damn it, I'm going to put, um, put footnotes into this particular book. It is not um, the only footnoted novel in New Zealand. It's certainly the most footnoted book novel in New Zealand. Yeah. Oh, I'll go there first, and then there, and then there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so if you're writing a character whose world you don't live in, like the character's world is entirely different to your world, yes. um, do you, how do you do that? Like, do you consult real people who actually are more in that world to make sure you get that accurate, if you get what I mean? Yes, I do. So if I feel that I'm not competent, then I will discard that character. If I'm not, for instance, I think that Alan Duff's Wonderful Warriors is fantastic. I just think it's absolutely fantastic. So for me, I would never ever even think of writing a novel like that because it's already been done by an expert, you know. And like Janet Frame, you know, her work is is is, is so wonderful um, in terms of being um, of the highest quality discourse. And there, there are things that David does. There are things that Fiona does. Um, with their characters. Um, I actually stay within a very narrow compass, which is a Māori world with Māori characters mainly, or a gay world with gay characters mainly. Um, so it's often about uh, what is the world of, of your book. And in fact, most writers, most, most writers have got a particular world and they do stay in it. Um, and, and, and I'm talking not just about Zenon writers, but American writers. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we love reading their work, you know, is, is because we, we love the world that they write about. So let me ask you a question and go around. What, what is the world that you write about? Local history, okay? Right, right. That's really good. I've now begun to move into environmental future fiction. And um, I call it scientific fiction, not science fiction. And it's from a Māori perspective. So I'm finding it very, very exciting, uh, you know, to get into um, that future forward work. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really humbling to hear you say that, all of you, because uh, New Zealand continues to need to be replenished in terms of the stories we tell about ourselves. And... It's, it's really important today when we are a, a much more diverse and thinking community um, than we used to, when we are being forced to think of our roles, not just within our own communities, but our roles with all of the various whakapapas or heritages or genealogies that we have all inherited and which we will pass on to the next generation. Um, and it's so exciting to understand that. Um, I've got um, two anthologies that I'm editing, and one of them is called um, A Kind of Shelter. And what it invites the reader to do is to join all of these writers in a shelter which is within the curving side of Papatuanuku, looking out at the future, what do they see? And it's incredible the amount of diversity that that they br they're bringing to this particular vision of what New Zealand will look like um, in the future. So it is, it, it is so important for us to continue to do this work. And it's also exciting to do. It's fun to do. And as long as you um, carry on the fun 
and the enjoyment, and don't be too frightened by this bogey called literature, you'll have a, a wonderful time and a fantastic career. Nā reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou and that is our show for this month. Thank you for joining me and guest Daphne Lee talking about her book Fossil Treasures of Foldenmar and the wonderful Witi Ihimara. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.